1: Hi everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Olivia Porter, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Naomi Appleton about her new book, Many Buddhas, One Buddha, a study and translation of Avadana Shatka 1-40, published by Equinox Publishing in 2020. Naomi Appleton is a Senior Lecturer in Asian Religions at the University of Edinburgh. Her primary research interest is in the role of narrative in early South Asian religions. Many Buddhas, One Buddha introduces a significant section of the important early Indian Buddhist text known as the Avadana Shataka, or 100 stories, and explores some of its perspectives on Buddhahood. This text, composed in Sanskrit and dating to perhaps the 3rd to 5th centuries of the Common Era, is affiliated with Savastivada, or Muli Savastivada, and thus provides important evidence of the ideas and literatures of lost non-Mahayana schools of Indian Buddhism. The text is a rich literary composition in mixed prose and verse, and includes some elaborate devotional passages that illuminate early Indian perspectives on the Buddha and on the role of Avadhana texts. The book introduces the first four chapters of the Avadana Shataka through key themes of these stories, such as predictions and vows, preparations for Buddhahood, the relationship between Shakyamuni and other Buddhas, and the relationship between full Buddhahood and Pratyeka Buddhahood. The study of these stories closes with an argument about the structural design of the text and what this tells us about attitudes towards different forms of awakening. The second part of the book then presents a full English translation of Stories 1 to 40. From tax-dodging merchants to monks fretting about their sewing skills, the stories offer a rich and entertaining slice of Indian Buddhist literature and teaching. Welcome to the podcast, Naomi, and thank you so much for being here and taking the time out to talk to us about One Buddha, Many Buddhas. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I was wondering if we could start with where and when your interest in Buddhist studies began, and perhaps how you got into Sanskrit Buddhist literature?
0: Yes, thank you. It's a question I'm often asked, and I always quite enjoy the answer actually, because it was a complete accident, uh, as I guess is probably the case for a lot of people. I was interested in religion first and foremost, partly because of having a an interesting family background, partly because of having a fantastic school teacher of RE at uh, um, secondary school. And so when I arrived in Cardiff to do my religious studies degree I was just sort of looking around for things that would seem interesting and I'd studied um Christianity Islam Judaism at school as well as philosophy of religion and so all of this Indian religion stuff that was on offer seemed particularly interesting and I guess I was kind of lucky with the people as well at the time in Cardiff there were three people doing Indian religions there was uh, Andrew Skilton, there was Kate Crosby, who was my first Sanskrit teacher, and there was Will Johnson as well. And so you had this amazing ability to do Sanskrit all the way through the degree, Pali as well. I did Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit. And that all kind of uh, just took my fancy from the beginning. I I took I signed up for Sanskrit in first year because, well, it sounded kind of weird and fun. And actually, partly because I have an older brother who is somewhat brilliant at languages. And I always assumed I couldn't do languages. And he'd done a bit of Sanskrit in his own linguistics degree. And I just thought, well, if he can do it, maybe I should give it a try. And I loved it. We started learning a lot of Indian stories because uh, we were using the killingly primers, which are just full of stories about uh, animals and so on, and just got totally, totally hooked through that. So it was a really strange confluence of different influences. And Uh, Once I got hooked on Buddhist narrative, I I guess I've never really looked back. And definitely key to it was fantastic teachers, uh, but also an awful lot of luck and circumstance, really.
1: Okay, so your interest in Buddhist uh, Sanskrit literature started from your undergraduate degree and then into your PhD?
0: That's right. So I did a, a master's first. I actually started writing on a particular Jataka story, a past life story of the Buddha for my undergraduate dissertation. I remember not being quite sure what to do for my undergraduate dissertation. And I I went into Andrew Skilton's office and he he handed me three pages of photocopied Devanagari and said, go and read that and then come back and talk to me about it. And it was a story from the Karanda sutra. And uh, it was about a flying horse saving some merchants who'd been shipwrecked on an island of demonesses. And I ended up studying that for my undergraduate dissertation. And I, I found there was so much more than I could cover in an undergraduate dissertation that I ended up doing a research master's as well, an MPhil, the following year on the same topic, really. Uh, and by that point, I just couldn't I couldn't give it up. I wanted to carry on. So that led me on to the PhD and, uh, and beyond.
1: Oh, wow. So it's all been kind of a continuation of events that have happened and it's all seemed to work out nicely. Um, and what was it that led yes. you to write Many Buddhas, One Buddha?
0: Well, unusually, actually, for for books, um, for generally for projects, for me, it, it was a little bit unplanned. So I started working on the Avadana Shataka because of the Jatakas, first of all. So one of my core research interests is the ways in which jataka's function and i got quite interested in how these two chapters in this text contain these stories of the past lives of the buddha but seem to be doing something very different with them to how they're used in other places that i was more familiar with including the pali tradition and so i started working on the jatakas in the avadana jataka for that reason and got more and more drawn into the text which is just a fantastically interesting and fun text And so I ended up teaming up with a group of other scholars to work more on the text more broadly. And because of that, I started working on the Prachekha Buddhas chapter. And originally, we were hoping to maybe create a collaborative translation of the whole text. So there are 100 stories, 10 chapters of 10 stories each. Um, But it just became a little bit too complicated in that. Uh, That plan didn't really come through, but we were working together and talking about these formulaic passages and about the themes. And I just ended up with so much material, I didn't quite know what to do with it. And so the idea for the book came together quite late on in the process as a way to share my translations of the first four decades, but also some of the reflections that had been uh, ruminating for several years about What's going on in those stories in those particular four chapters uh, of the text?
1: Okay. And I was just wondering: is there was there a Pali version and a Sanskrit version of the text that you were using comparatively, or was there one version that you were using more?
0: No, so the Avidana Shataka is in Sanskrit and Tibetan and Chinese. Uh, And I was working purely with the Sanskrit version of the text. Some of the stories have some resonances with other stories in other Sanskrit texts and indeed in Pali texts. But actually what was quite interesting to me was the fact that it was offering a very different vision of the point of karmic stories and the point of stories of past lives to the Pali collection. So my doctoral work was all on the Pali uh, understanding of the Jataka genre and how the Theravada tradition built up certain ideas about Buddhahood and about the path to Buddhahood, and about the role of, of Jataka stories in teaching and in exploring ideas of uh, ethics and uh, and of paths. And so, the Avadana Jataka is is so different in the way it presents things that it really created this totally new uh, window into Indian Buddhism.
1: Well, that sounds really interesting. I wonder if we should maybe talk a little bit about what avadana what Avedana literature is, um, just in case people aren't aware.
0: Sure, yeah. So um, avadana is one of those quite tricky terms. Uh, so most people know that a jataka is a past life story of the Buddha. Some jatakas are also avadanas, and there are also other stories that are avadanas that are not jatakas. And, and it's because avadana becomes quite an inclusive term. Nobody really agrees what it means, which is why I end up really just translating it as story. Uh, they're usually stories of heroic deeds, but sometimes bad ones, sometimes downright mundane ones. Actually, in the Avadana Shataka, it's very clearly understood that all of the stories, all of the avadanas, are karmic consequence tales in some sense. So they're all about significant deeds and their results in subsequent lifetimes. And usually in the avadana shataka, we're talking about devotional deeds. So most of the deeds that are karmically significant in these avadanas are offerings to Buddhas or offerings to stupas and vows perhaps, or aspirations for future attainments. So it's those sorts of deeds and their results that are usually portrayed in avadana literature, but it's a fairly open term and it has different meanings in, in different places.
1: Okay, um, and so the book is split into two parts: Part A and Part B. And the first is more of a background and analysis of the type of literature, and the second part is a translation. Um, I was wondering, in Part A, you mentioned different types of awakened beings, so the Pratyeka Buddha, um, and Full Buddhahood. Could you tell us a little bit about different types of awakened beings that are mentioned in the literature?
0: Yeah, that's right. So, one of the interesting things about the Avadana Shataka is that it has stories about all three different types of awakened beings. That is to say, uh, full and complete Buddhas, who we usually refer to just as Buddhas, and uh, Arahats, uh, who are awakened disciples. And they're addressed in, in the last four chapters of the text, which I don't really cover in my book. And then these Pracheka Buddhas. Um, and, and they're a really puzzling category, actually, really interesting. Um, it's somehow in between a full Buddha and an Arhat in the sense that like a full Buddha, they are said to realize the truth themselves without a teacher. And yet, uh, unlike a full Buddha, they don't found a community of followers. So they can teach. They do teach in some contexts. We see that they have the ability to help others Achieve attainments as well. But they're usually portrayed as being quite solitary. And in fact, the usual translation of Prachika Buddha is solitary Buddha. Um, sometimes people even call them lonely Buddhas, although I, I think that sort of implies something that is lacking in their lives, which is certainly not what is portrayed. They're solitary renouncers. They are quite self contained. They realize the truth themselves. They achieve awakening and they escape the cycle of samsara without really having a massive impact. On the world, and I actually kind of find them intriguing, partly because they they sort of challenge the idea of the centrality of the Buddha, um, or indeed Buddhas, full Buddhas as a category. And of course, we talk about the Buddha as Shakyamuni Buddha or Gotama Buddha, the, the one. Sometimes we call him the historical Buddha, the one who we think lived in the fifth century BCE. But very early on, the Buddhist community had an idea that he was just one of a lineage, that there were past Buddhas and there will be future Buddhas, and that these Buddhas provide this unique opportunity. They found a community of followers. They make available the teaching to others. And, and then in between these times of Buddhism, there are these odd little characters, these little Prateka Buddhas who just realize the truth as if by magic, and then uh, disappear off into nirvana, and that's that. And it just seems to me to be a really puzzling and intriguing category. They do, I think, uh, often have associations in the literature with encountering something really shocking, so often a, a realization of impermanence. So seeing a withered leaf, for example, or one of the stories in the Avedana Shataka, we find somebody who uh, magically... Uh, Every time he walks around, lotuses spring up on his footsteps. And uh, there's a sort of explanation as to this in the story, but uh, he's a prince and he's invited out into the city to decorate the city for a festival because he has this amazing ability to decorate it with lotuses. But as the sun touches the lotuses, they wither and die. And he immediately thinks, oh, that's just like the body. And he realizes awakening there and then and becomes a Prateka Buddhist, just straight away. And so it's this very direct uh, experiential form of awakening that Pratyeka Buddhas are usually achieving. And th- the other intriguing thing about them actually is that they are present in Jain narrative as well. So it's not a category that only exists in Buddhism. So they're, they're potentially challenging to full Buddhas because they have this ability to achieve awakening independently. And they can also, in fact, offer some support to others To achieve awakening, too. So, they're a very unexpected uh, find in this sort of little uh, typology of types of awakening that we find in early Buddhism. I I prefer to translate them as independent Buddhas. I don't think solitary is really necessarily a description of them apart from anything else. They often travel around in groups of 500 in the narrative, which is hardly solitary. But it's their independence that I think really defines them and makes them quite tricky for some narrative compilers and, and storytellers to, to make sense of.
1: Well, that's really interesting. So There's a kind of different um, definition and aspect to these Pratyeka Buddhas that maybe lots of mass audience aren't, audiences aren't used to. Um, what type of audience are these stories aimed at? Oh, that's a
0: great question. And we don't really know. Uh, there's a close relationship between Avadana literature and the Vinaya, particularly the Mula Savastivada Vinaya, which is just full of stories. And the uh, Avedana Shataka is, is part of a group of Avedana texts that seem to be affiliated to the Mula Savastivada or, or the Savastivada, including the Divya Avedana, um which has also been made available in translation relatively recently, thanks to the work of Andy Rotman. It's... Hard to know, though, whether the audience for the stories was monastic or lay or perhaps a mixture, and we don't really have evidence as to how they would have been used or accessed either. So certainly they're chock full of formulaic passages, and I do think that is indicative of oral use. I think these were stories meant to be recited and perhaps even in some sense performed, there are there are certain passages that are very visual as well and quite devotional. In fact, the stories in general are, are pretty uh, focused heavily on glorifying the Buddha and how awesome the Buddha is and, and how amazing he looks and the amazing miracles that he can do. So there is a sense that they might have been part of a devotional practice. My favorite passage of, of all the repeated passages is the buddha's smile which is not unique to the avadana chattika actually we find it in other texts as well but it's particularly commonly found in these stories in the avadana chattika and it's associated with the buddha's ability to predict future achievements so what happens is something some kind of event takes place some sort of circumstances unfold and then the buddha smiles and rays of light emanate from his mouth And they travel to the hell realms and they emit an image of the Buddha who inspires faith in the hell beings that enables them to immediately be reborn in better circumstances. And then these rays of light also travel up to the heaven realms and they shout out impermanent suffering, not self, uh, so that the gods can be sort of stunned out of their basking in enjoyments and realize the true nature of of experience for them as well. And then these rays of light um, reassemble and re-enter the Buddha's body. And the point at which they re-enter the body determines what prediction he's going to make uh, as to the person's future rebirth state or future attainment of awakening. And this passage is repeated again and again and again. And it's really, really long and it's very visual. And I do get the sense that this would have been part of a visualization practice That this was about imagining these rays of light pervading the cosmos, and I I don't think it's the sort of text that would have been read uh, or 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 accessed alone. Perhaps also uh, suggestions of it being a communal text, uh, perhaps hinged in devotional practice. But this is all, to a certain extent, this is all speculation. It's very very hard to say for sure. We don't really have enough evidence how these sorts of texts were used.
1: The imagery is so nice and really illuminating and I think in your (laughs) translation you really capture some of that. It's very nice to read. Thank Um, you. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about these early Indian non-Mahayana traditions um, and how the avadana shatka might fit in with them. Sure yeah so the, the the typical thing that is taught, particularly in
0: schools, perhaps, and, and maybe a little bit higher up into universities as well, is we, we tend to think about Buddhism as being divided into Theravada and Mahayana. So we get this sense that there are two main branches to Buddhism, the Theravada, of course, being prevalent in Sri Lanka and, and Southeast Asia, and then Mahayana being what dominates in, in Tibet and also in East Asia. And the truth of, of that in contemporary terms is it's reasonable, As a a scholarly distinction. But in terms of history, we know that Theravada was only one of the Indian schools of Buddhism. It's the only one to have survived with an extant set of scriptures, uh, with an unbroken monastic lineage. But other Indian Buddhist schools were debating some of the same questions, coming up with different answers. And it's become very interesting to me to use the narrative traditions that we've. Found that, that have survived to try to understand how these different schools were thinking about the Buddha, thinking about awakening, about the path to nirvana. And the ways in which they told stories about the Buddha and about key followers seems to me to be really offering us quite an interesting lens. And so we've mentioned the Avadana shataka is probably Savastivada or Mula Sevastivada, um, probably Northwestern. Uh, we find a text that is clearly not mahayana in the sense that it acknowledges all three paths to awakening as being valid and yet it appears to have been compiled after the mahayana becomes quite important movement and so it, perhaps it might be in some way even responding to some of the mahayana ideas or at the very least it's evidence that all these different buddhist communities were grappling with the same questions uh, about the nature of the Buddha, about how the Buddha relates to other awakened beings, about how the most recent Buddha, about how Shakyamuni Buddha relates to other Buddhas of the past and of the present, and so we find really colourful depictions of this. A- another example uh, that's also been unfortunately quite understudied is the Mahavastu, which belongs to the Lokottaravada school, and again this brilliant narrative compilation uh recently been worked on quite extensively by Van Tournier, but really fantastic evidence for a whole different view of who the Buddha is and was, and how his achievements relate to the achievements of his followers or of his predecessors. So I think there's so much more we don't know about Indian Buddhism and about how these different early schools departed from one another and related to one another. And if we think about Buddhism as divided just into Theravada and Mahayana, we miss a whole part of the the, the puzzle there. So the the Buddha of the Avadana Shataka is this amazingly super mundane figure. He's I've already mentioned his miraculous smile, but he's constantly doing miracles. He's constantly predicting people to achievements. Uh, he's explaining people's past karma. He's converting people. He's really quite a different Buddha to the Buddha you would meet in, say, the Pali Jataka's, And yet somehow we take sometimes Pali literature as being representative of some uh, coherent early Indian view of the Buddha and of Buddhahood. Whereas actually, of course, Pali literature is only one perspective. It's, it's a Theravada school perspective. And there are lots of different views out there and lots of different literatures worthy of study.
2: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Definitely. It sounds like more research needs to be done in this area. Um, I've got a question. What do you think are the main differences between this type of Buddhist Sanskrit literature when there are alternative versions in Pali? Are there any like thematic differences that you can observe um, when you compare the two types of texts that cover the same sort of story?
0: That's an interesting question. And I think you'd have to think about it on a case-by-case basis. So there aren't generally whole texts, whole narrative texts that are available in Sanskrit and Pali parallel. So we do have, of course, the the Sutta texts uh, with parallels that we have, largely thanks to Chinese translations. Um But when it comes to the narrative collections, each school seems to have taken a different sort of approach. And this might be because these traditions were very much oral traditions. And so they were perhaps a little bit more associated with a fluid storytelling tradition and less fixed, not fixed in the same way as the memorised Sutta texts, for example. So what we find is this massive collection of Jataka stories in Pali, for example, nearly 550 stories and then we find much smaller texts in other Indian schools sometimes just of jatakas sometimes more broadly of narrative literature such as in the mahavastu i've already mentioned and in the avadana Shataka. Uh, we find jataka malas so so garland uh, collections of jatakas in quite high sanskrit and stories individual stories you can often see that there are parallels in the Pali collection, but they'll be told quite differently. And there's no consistent pattern as far as I've been able to ascertain yet in how those differences play out. There are a couple of tendencies, though. So, for example, Pali, the Pali Jatka collection is quite um, reluctant to tell stories about bodily sacrifice of the Bodhisattva, whereas Sanskrit narrative traditions are chock full of stories of the bodhisattva chopping off his head and pulling out his eyes and cutting off his flesh and feeding himself to the insects and all these sorts of things and and they that there's a sort of relishing of these bodily sacrifice stories in some of these sanskrit traditions that we just don't really find in the, the pali jataka collection although interestingly enough some of the same stories do then circulate in southeast asia as part of what we refer to as the punyasa Jataka traditions, uh, which is a, a non-classical Jataka uh, tradition. So th- there's it's a really complicated network, and we very rarely have direct parallel texts to be working with. It's more about thinking about related clusters of stories and the sorts of choices that people are making about how they tell that story in the different contexts in which they're they're working.
1: Great. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your favorite story was when you were writing um One Buddha, Bitter, many Buddhas.
0: <laughs> I have too many favourites, that's my problem. Um I, I just love this text. I, I I can't quite get over how brilliant the stories are in this text. Um okay, let's try and pick one. I think probably my favorite, because it did actually make me laugh out loud was, uh, I think it's story number four. And it's about a merchant who keeps getting shipwrecked and losing all of his gains and having these really unsuccessful voyages. And then he hears that there's this Buddha. And he thinks, okay, if uh, I'm successful in my next voyage, I will give half of my gains to the Buddha. And because he's made this uh, devotionally, powerfully, karmically beneficial resolution, he has this amazingly successful voyage and he comes back with heaps of jewels and he he lays them all out on the ground after he gets home and he thinks, hmm, I'm just not sure that I really want to give half of this to the Buddha. I you know, really re- kind of regret saying that. Um, I, I can't really do this, can I? It would be a bit silly. And so what he does is he sells his wealth to his wife, for two small coins. And then he goes and buys a little bit of incense and he goes to the Jaitavan Grove and he burns his little incense in his little mark of devotion to the Buddha. And the um, because of the Buddha's power, the incense smoke actually billows up and becomes like thunderclouds. And it's quite terrifying. And the merchant is well aware of what he's done wrong, and of the consequences he's having, and, and he immediately regrets this, and he invites the Buddha for a meal, and he showers him with wealth, and he resolves to uh, future Buddhahood, and, and he's predicted by the Buddha with his miraculous smile that, that he will, this merchant will become a Buddha in the future. But I, I just love the, the humanity of that story. I love the fact that we have a, a really human character who has this need to to make an income uh who has a commitment he really can't quite follow through with and and it's a of course it's a tax dodge that people use to this day so these are stories from thousands of years ago and yet we can recognize these people i think uh, in our own society today as well
1: That's so funny. People never change, I suppose, even after all this time. (laughs) Um, What did you find most challenging about uh, writing the book?
0: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's one of the things that fascinates me about the Avadana Ashataka is that it is quite a complicated text. So, it's tricky then to try and help somebody who's unfamiliar with it to navigate what's going on with all these different types of story, uh, quite a lot of repetition as well, quite a lot of long formulae to, to navigate in the translation. And then trying to communicate what might be being uh, sought in this complex structure of interweaving stories and timeframes. And and that became quite a challenge when I was writing the the introduction. In in terms of the translation, the challenges were largely around these formulaic passages. In some ways, it's not that difficult a text. It's also it's available in a fairly decent Sanskrit edition. the The real tricky thing is how do you translate a text that is full of repeated formulae and earlier translators it's never been translated in in full in English, but there's a French translation. And uh, the translator just basically put all of the the repeated passages in an appendix and then had cross references in the text. And and that was quite unsatisfactory in in that you kind of lose the characteristics of the text and and this idea of oral recitation practice that I, I mentioned earlier. And so I think I was very conscious that I wanted to keep the formulae, but at the same time, it's a huge challenge to balance because a modern reader isn't going to be gr- grouping together and then chanting the text they're going to want to sit and and read it and then if they're constantly meeting these quite complex lists of qualities of the Buddha for example or um, you know ways in which uh, the the perfect raising of a child is is explained or uh, you know all sorts of different formulae about wealth, you know, de- describing a wealthy householder, for example, it can get quite challenging for the reader. So, and then of course, every time you make a a change to a phrase, you're having to check that you've made that same change in in all the different formulae occurrences and so on. So, it it was a very mind bending experience working on the translation, and, and no doubt there are still some uh, some real inadequacies with it. But I hope at least it's it's made this material available in a way that it just hasn't been. And, and disappointingly, the case that th- this Sanskrit edition has been available for 100 years or so, and there's been no real attempt to make this translation, make this text available in translation for a wider audience, even though it's such a rich text to, to dip in and experience.
1: Well, the repetition reminds me of when I was first learning Pali and Sanskrit and I Mm. found it quite comforting that there was so much repetition because I thought, okay, at least I'm going to get the first bit right because I know (laughs) the same thing happens every time. (laughs) Um, That's interesting. I'm thinking about the logistics of that. I mean, we're using like multiple monitors to kind of keep tabs (laughs) on what was going on. It sounds very hard. (laughs) Yeah. And and it was particularly so
0: when we were originally trying to bring together a team translation. And so, uh, then you're kind of trying to put together what you think is the best rendering of a formula, but then you're also trying to agree it with a group of of other scholars who maybe have different styles or different choices for different terms. So that was very challenging. And I, I did have some extremely long, very enjoyable, uh, stints in cafes in, uh, Around the time of the Toronto IABS Congress with uh, Karen Muldon Hughes, who is who is one of the collaborators on this project, and we just spent hours in the cafe just going, yes, but what about this word? But what about that word? Well, Should we indent the formatting of this list? And <laughs> would it be clearer if we did this? And could we do that? And and it's it is very mind-boggling style of of, of Sanskrit, but on the other hand, once you've made those decisions, as you say, it's very repetitious. So then you just you can reproduce those decisions in in story after story. And, and then when you start when you start reading your translation of a passage for the tenth time in a row, and you realize it's still feeling clunky, you know you've got to revisit it uh, and, and deal with it uh, properly. So yeah, challenging but a really interesting process. And I, I did really enjoy working with the, these other scholars as well. So it was also Justin Fifield and, and Andy Rotman. And David Fjordalis, and they all had very different, equally valuable ways of translating these passages. And and Andy had encountered many of them in his Devyavadana translations already. So we had a really interesting and rich dialogue. And I still don't know, to be honest, to this day, how much of my translation is really my translation in this book. Uh, A lot of it came out of these discussions and these debates and agreements. So it's very heavily influenced by that process.
1: Okay. Um, so is it Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit? Is that the style of Sanskrit that you're working with?
0: It's not very hybrid, no. Uh, it's, it's not really in that realm. I mean, the Mahavastu would be a better example of, of a Buddhist hybrid text. Avedana is is pretty straightforward Sanskrit, to be honest. It's more the the style of the composition and and these very lengthy formulaic uh, passages that, that make it more tricky, um, but it's not so much around individual choices. Although always with translating Sanskrit Buddhist texts, it's always handy to have a Pali dictionary by your hand and uh, an Edgerton uh, Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit dictionary to hand as well. But it, it, in general, no, it's it's not really it's not hybrid enough. I would say to count.
1: Oh, okay, um, so it's pretty straightforward Sanskrit text.
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of the in terms of the vocabulary, there are a few oddballs that you you come across, um, and with the lists of concepts and terms, sometimes they are better documented from Pali materials than from Sanskrit materials. But I, I would describe it as Buddhist Sanskrit rather than Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit, if that makes sense.
1: Okay. Yeah. Do you have any advice for students who perhaps are interested in this type of area and want to get in involved in maybe learning more Sanskrit or Pali? <laughs> just do it
0: uh, <laughs> yeah I think there's there's so much rich literature, and one of the problems is that the better known texts get restudied and restudied and restudied, and then sometimes the lesser known texts just stay in obscurity and I think the real task there is, is to find a good supervisor, perhaps who can guide those initial explorations, who can maybe point you to something that would be an interesting uh, text to investigate. But there's certainly plenty to be done. Uh, obviously, having some language training is really helpful in that. And then it's that challenge of, of trying to work out what it is exactly that you're interested in? You know, what, what what is it that you're that that really gets your passion? Is it that you really want to be like me? You really want to be looking at stories? You're really interested in big themes like karma and rebirth, like Buddhahood, or is it something else that's that's really intriguing you? Are you interested in monastic uh, regulations, for example, or in the history of some of these uh, Sutta materials or poetry? Is it poetry that really gets you going? And I think trying to understand your own interests by just reading really widely can be very important. And then having some guidance from a, a good supervisor or or mentors, scholars in the field to start thinking about where you could make a contribution.
1: Definitely. And are there any particular texts that haven't been translated before that you've got your eye on that you want to um, do some research on?
0: <laughs> I, um, I always see my translation work as as a tool that i use in order to study a text i never set out to do a translation i translate things in order to be able to understand them myself to to relate to them you do you read a text differently when you read it in in an original language and even if there's a good translation available actually which is the case for some texts so i haven't really got my eye on uh, anything else, I'm still hoping that the rest of the avadana shataka will reach print in translation uh, in the coming years. There certainly moves in that direction. Um, the divya Vodhana I've mentioned was one that's really only very recently become available in, in good translation. Uh, and th- that was another one that's been around for ages in a, a pretty decent Sanskrit edition. So those, those, to me, are the ones that have been most interesting. But I think there's, there's always going to be a role for reading uh, more widely and, and meeting new texts, and I'm sure I will encounter others as well as my research progresses.
1: Yes. Um, so what are you working on next? What are your future projects like? So I suppose there are two
0: strands to what I'm doing next. Um, so one is an ongoing project, really, I guess, throughout my whole career, which is I'm still trying to understand the Jataka genre across different Indian contexts. So uh, thinking not just about texts actually, but also art and also the interface with non-Buddhist literature, which is another interest of mine. I'm I'm really intrigued by the ways in which Buddhist narrative relates to the wider Indian narrative literature uh, and I've been working on a, a database thanks to some funding from the Leverhulme Trust and that has already started that's already launched the Jataka database and that has a certain number of Jataka's I think around 700 or thereabouts uh, in texts, and then a, a far smaller number from some of the early artistic sites and alongside expanding that, I'm, I'm also gathering material for probably for a book eventually thinking about Jatakas across these different Indian Buddhist contexts. But in in some ways, that's gonna have to go on hold a little bit at the moment because I'm just about to begin a new AHRC funded project with Chris Jones, uh, which has actually come very much out of the, the One Buddha, Many Buddhas book, in that it's exploring uh, that that interest in how the buddha relates to other awakened buddhas uh, other awakened beings and, and and other buddhas so very much buddology in that narrow sense of the term and chris jones is an expert particularly in uh, mahayana literature and i am very interested in what we're going to be able to do together we're we're very explicitly setting out to think about Mahayana and non-Mahayana narrative materials side by side, thinking about some of these shared concerns around the nature of the Buddha, around the relationship of the Buddha with other Buddhas and with other awakened beings, and thinking about the non-Mahayana literature as being around under the influence of Mahayana literature as well. So rather than separating off the study of non-Mahayana from the study of Mahayana, really thinking about crossing the boundaries there and seeing what happens when you look at it from from both sides. So that'll be a really fun project. Actually, I'm really looking forward to getting stuck in to that. And it's still very much narrative literature, still very much early Indian. We're looking really at the first half of the first millennium CE. Uh, the Avadana Shataka will continue to be a part of that, as will uh, the Mahavastu and, and other Jataka materials, but also a huge rich literature of some of the the Mahayana uh, sutra materials and their approach to exploring these questions through narrative is is both similar and different in in ways that we will um, draw out over the coming years.
1: That sounds so interesting. Will you be also considering contemporary perspectives to these types of texts or is it more of a historical overview?
0: Oh no, I like to keep to my history. Uh, I I think really the interest for me is, is almost like, well, very much like a classicist. You know, I'm I'm a classicist of India, I'm a classical Indologist. I'm interested in the ancient civilizations and the ways in which the, the people of a very distant time and place to me are grappling with the same questions about life and about making a meaningful life and about impermanence and about consequences of actions and and that's what fascinates me so uh obviously in my teaching and in my wider keeping up with scholarship I do enjoy reading and learning about uh, and teaching about more contemporary forms of buddhism but in terms of the research I'm very happy to immerse myself in a long distant time and place and really just trying to understand what was going on for these people in, in this earlier period and how they were dealing with the encounter between different groups and different ideas about these key questions.
1: That sounds great and I'm sure this research will be very useful to lots of scholars um, from different disciplines as well.
0: I hope so um, and, and, and another part of what the project is hoping to do actually is also working to support school teachers with some additional resources because some of the key questions here around the nature of the Mahayana and the relationship between the Mahayana and other forms of Buddhism. And of course, the nature of the Buddha and, and what it means to be a Buddha. These are very key questions that get addressed right from, uh, from, from earlier down in, in schools as well. So we're hoping we'll be able to contribute there as well.
1: Well, that's interesting. So will one avenue of the research be like materials that are accessible for a younger audience?
0: Yes, or or at least accessible for teachers to transform into materials for teaching, as it were. We're not um, necessarily thinking about uh, reaching pupils directly, but very much through teachers and through supporting teachers in their understanding and, and resources.
1: Well, that sounds really good. Um, it's been so nice to talk to you about One Buddha, Many Buddhas and hear about your research Um, I think we'll wrap up here if that's okay Okay. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you very much for having me